morning, Grace. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 6. As we've been for the past several weeks, we will continue to be in the book of Mark as we are walking through the book of Mark week by week. We will to, uh, up until right before Memorial Day weekend. And uh, as a way of reminder, uh, the small group material, as we do here, we do a thing called sermon-based small groups where we actually study the passage a week before I go through it. So the material for um, those who are meeting tonight, there's still some available in the back uh, on the table. And for next week's study, week 12, you can pick those up there as well. Well, in light of it being or having a distinguished pick here today, I'd like, you to, I'd like to share a story about a woman named Pam. Now, Pam, in 1985, she and her husband moved to the Philippines where they served as Christian missionaries. Now, hoping to expand their family, they began to pray for little Timmy by name. Now, just before she became pregnant, Pam fell into a coma after contracting amoebic dysentery, a bacteria transmitted through contaminated drinking water. Her treatment required a series of very, very strong medications. As a result of those medications, doctor told Pam um, that the fetus had been irreversibly damaged. And then they strongly advised her to have an abortion. Now, she refused to because of her faith. She spent the last two months of her pregnancy on bread rest. And on her due date, August 14, 1987, she gave birth to a healthy baby boy who she described as skinny but rather long. Now, for those of you who don't know, that boy's name is Tim Tebow. And Tim Tebow, if you're unfamiliar, he is pretty much everywhere in the sports world right now, even though his team, the Denver Broncos, lost yesterday to the New England Patriots. But his story is pretty inspirational. We talked a little bit about him in our men's breakfast yesterday, but the more that I learn about this young man, the more amazed that I am. And for those that are unfamiliar, uh, Tim, as we heard, was born to missionary parents in the Philippines. They came back to the United States where uh, he was raised on the family's farm just outside of Jacksonville, Florida, 44-acre farm. And their father, Bob Tebow, uh, has a ministry where he continually goes back to the Philippines where they have and run an orphanage that is there. It's a pretty amazing story. Now, Tim was, grew up homeschooled, and he ended up be, uh, taking up football. He went um, from football, uh, high school football, became an, uh, you know, an All-American, went on to the University of Florida where he became the starting quarterback and then eventually became the Heisman Trophy winner and winning the national championship. And he is overt uh, about his faith. It's pretty amazing to think about how much a man of God he is. And if you are unfamiliar, he gets drafted by the Denver Broncos in a pretty amazing fashion. He becomes a first-round pick, and he goes on to become the starting quarterback of the Denver Broncos. And he is completely overt about his faith with, um, in, in Jesus Christ. He has verses displayed on his eye patches, and it's caused millions of people, after seeing him in the national championship game, millions to Google John 3.16. And now there are many people that have come to faith in Jesus Christ through his amazing testimony. Now, Rick Riley of Sports Illustrated wrote an article about him just this past week. He said this, and the article is entitled, Why I Believe in Tim Tebow. He said, he said this, I've come to believe in Tim Tebow, but not for what he does on a football field. I mean, he's been criticized as not having the skills necessary to be a starting quarterback in the NFL, although he has generated some of these amazing comebacks uh, this past season. 
He says, no, I've come to believe in Tim Tebow for what he does off a football field, which is represent the best parts of us, the parts I want to be and so rarely am. Who among us is this selfless? Every week, Tim Tebow picks out someone who is suffering or who is dying or who is injured. He flies these people and their families to the Broncos game, rents them a car, puts them up in a nice hotel, buys them dinner, gets them in their family's pregame passes, visits them just before kickoff, gets them 30-yard line tickets down low, visits them after the game, sometimes for an hour, has them walk him to his car and sends them off with a basket of gifts. Home on the, or on the road, win or loss, he's either the hero or the goat. He does this. And Riley says, remember last week when the world was pulling its hair out, out, out in the hour after Tebow had stunned the Pittsburgh Steelers with an 80-yard over, overtime touchdown pass to Demarius Thomas in the playoffs. And Twitter was exploding with a record 9,420 tweets about Tebow per second. Per second. When an ESPN poll was naming him the most popular athlete in America, what was he doing? Tebow was spending that hour talking to a 16-year-old Bailey Knob about her 73 surgeries so far and what TV shows she likes. Here he just played the game of his life, recalls Bailey's mother, Kathy of Loveland, Colorado. And the first thing he does after his press conference is come find Bailey and ask, did you get anything to eat? He acted like what he'd just done wasn't anything. It was all about Bailey. More than that, Tebow kept corralling people into the room for Bailey to meet. Hey, Demarius, come in and have here a minute. Hey, Mr. Elway. Hey, Coach Fox, come here. Even though sometimes fatal Wagoner's granulomatosis had left Bailey with only one lung, the attention took her breath away. She said, it was the best day of my life, she emailed. It was a bright star among very gloomy and difficult days. Tim Tebow gave me the greatest gift I could ever imagine. He gave me the strength for the future. I know now that I can face any obstacle placed in front of me. Tim taught me to never give up because at the end of the day, today might seem bleak, but it can rain, can't rain forever and tomorrow is a new day with new promises. Riley says, I read that email to, Tim, Tim, uh, to Tebow and he was honestly floored. He says, why me? Why should I inspire her? He said, I just don't feel, I don't know, adequate. Really, hearing her story inspires me. This whole thing makes no football sense, of course. He goes, most NFL players hardly talk to teammates before a game, much less visit with the sick and dying. Isn't that a huge distraction? Just the opposite, Tebow says. It's by far the best thing I could do to get myself ready. Here you are, about to play a game that the world says is the most important thing in the world. Win, and they praise you. Lose, and they crush you. And here I have a chance to talk to the coolest, most courageous people. It puts, you, puts it all into perspective. The game doesn't really matter. I mean, I'll give 100% of my heart to win it, but in the end, the thing I most want to do is not win championships or make a lot of money. It's to invest in people's lives to make a difference. What amazing story of inspiration to see what God is doing in this young man's life. Now, as we've been reminded, we reminded yesterday, and, and anytime we put uh, a Christian athlete gets put on a pedestal, they quickly fall. So we must make sure to put that in proper perspective, that he is human and he has feet of clay. But continue to pray for him, that God would use him. Even the Billy Graham Association just reported last week that after Tebow, they won the comeback. It was a, a pretty amazing thing that happened that Google went and um, so many people were saying to Tebow, we're looking up John 3.16 that he has, and 150 people came to know Christ as a result of it. Pretty amazing story to see what God is doing 
through this young man. Now, I'm amazed not only what God is doing through this man and how God is using him to reach others, but I'm amazed that it's, football's not the most important thing to him. He wants to make a difference in people's lives. And he invites people into his life to see what it is that he does, to come onto the field, to meet all these other athletes. And he gives, us, he gives these people these um, invitations. Now, we get invitations every day. We get invitations to go to, to weddings, to bridal showers, to go to uh, birthday parties or baby showers, and we don't really think too much of it. And whenever we get, I'm imagining, if we got an invitation from a professional athlete, it would be probably an invitation we'd pay attention to. But he even says that in the end of things, it's just a football game. It doesn't really matter that much. But do you know... I look at his life and I see what he invites people to do and I'm pretty amazed. Because, you know, it's very similar to what God does for us. He invites us to see him. With all of our sin, with all of our sickness, with all of our hang-ups, with all of our bad habits, he invites us into his life to witness him at work for the purpose of us believing, trusting in him, and then walking with him in a very powerful and poignant way. And it's that I invite us all to look at this morning and how Jesus invites us where we are in the situation we're in with all of the different difficulties and distractions that we have to witness Him at work. And then He invites us to not only witness Him, but to participate with Him in His mission to reach a lost and dying world. So please turn with me, if you haven't already, to the book of Mark, chapter 6. We have a lot of verses to cover today. We'll be reading from Mark, chapter 6, verse 7, all the way through verse 52. And it's our tradition here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the reading of God's Word. The Holy Spirit, through John Mark, says, And He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths, 
and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many of them were going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you today desperate to understand and apply your word to our lives. Lord, we are, we are so hungry. We need your presence. Lord, we need you to guide us. We need you to speak to us by your spirit. Lord, please open up our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us. Lord, let the distractions of the day be silent. Lord, let all of the sins in which we have struggled this past week, let all of the, the suffering and the sickness that we've encountered, Lord, may it all be laid at your feet. And Lord, please speak to us. We are your servants and we are listening. Lord, we pray that you speak to us, that we might apply this truth to our lives that we might joyously continue to walk with you in ever greater faith. So, Lord, please glorify your name in our service today. The glory, honor, and praise of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, we've gone through our text. We're going to be walking through this piece by piece. And let's just jump straight in. Keep your Bibles open. Keep your eyes nimble so we can go through this because there is a lot that God wants to show us through this passage. First of all, we need to understand that Jesus invites us to help Him with His message. Now, His invitation involves sending us into the world. That's the first point that I want you to write down. Sending us into the world. Jesus sends us into the world, and the passage we are looking at today is a precursor to the charge that He would give to all of His disciples after His resurrection from the dead. 
But before we get ahead of ourselves, we need to get a grasp of what Mark is trying to tell us. He sends the apostles, into, the 12 apostles into the world. Now let's look at verse 7 together. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. Now we don't know exactly why he sent them two by two. Probably to make sure and substantiate the testimony that they were about to have within the community. Also, accountability purposes, keeping one another from sin, also keeping them from safe. Now, he sends the apostles out two by two. Now, we understand that he sends us out, but I want to look at the fact that he sends the apostles out because he gives them, uh, he sends them out into the world with a very unique ministry. That's the first thing that we need to understand here. It's a very unique thing that he has. Their ministry is extremely unique. Now, we can't apply what they meant for them to us. There were 12 apostles. We are not apostles. The Greek word apostolos simply means sent one. And today, you can be in churches and you'll see people designate themselves apostle, meaning they are meaning a sent one. However, within Scripture, there are 12 designated in the office of apostle. Now, we know that one, Judas, hanged himself, and he died, and he was replaced in Acts chapter 1, verse 21 through 22, by Matthias. And there were requirements for Matthias to replace Judas. He had to have been with Jesus from the very beginning of the ministry to witness and see, be with him throughout the ministry, even after he was taken up or into the ascension that we see in Acts chapter 1. So are these 12 apostles. Now, there are some that are called to be an apostle, such as Paul. Paul says, I'm an apostle, but I am one that is abnormally born. Now, the office of apostle was substantiated by the fact that they could do miraculous deeds, signs and wonders, as Corinthians 12.12 states us. So their ministry was very unique, and it was unique in its task, the task that Jesus gives them. I want you to continue to look at the text. Look at verse 7 with me. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Unclean spirits. Now, the word unclean spirits there is another way of saying demons. So they have, he's given given them, because he is the, the Lord of all, the authority over unclean spirits. Now also, skip down to verse 13. And they cast out, excuse me, many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick, and heal them. The anointing oil is a picture of healing from sickness. We see this also in James chapter 5. If anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church, and they will anoint him with oil. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, they're anointing with oil, and these, these individuals are healed. So these apostles, though, have a very supernatural ministry. It's not only are they given authority over spirits, but they're given authority over sickness. So that's their task. Now, it was for a time. It was for a time. Look at verse 30. Look at verse 30. This is how we know it was for a time. The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. So it was just for that period of time. And it was to substantiate Jesus' message. That's what they were doing. They were his representatives going out and calling people to repentance and to believe in Jesus Christ. It was for a time. It was to substantiate and watch it propagate the message of Jesus Christ. So we understand that it was a very unique ministry. And they had a task. It was over spirits and sickness. And it was for a time. But there's also a testimony that they had to give. Very curious testimony. Look down at verse 10. Look down at verse 10 with me. 
When you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. That's a very curious wording there. What does it mean to shake off the dust that is on your feet? Well, later rabbinic rabbi, these teachers, resources note that Jews who returned from Gentile regions were to shake off the dust that is on their feet, not only as a form of cleansing, that's what they were to do, to be cleansing themselves, but it also serves as a sign, as a testimony against them for not receiving the message of Christ. The act of shaking off the dust is an illustration of the fact that their rejection of God's message leaves the town accountable to God. I like how the, that's how the ESV study Bible describes it. I, I really enjoy that. I think that's what's going on. They were to testify. Now, while we see that the ministry of the apostles was very unique, we too know that we are sent by God out into the world. And our ministry is universal. While theirs was unique, ours is universal. Now, this isn't in your text. We're jumping out of Mark just for a moment to look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 through 20. Now, some of you have that memorized. If you don't, turn. Flip to the back of Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 28. This is known as the Great Commission. This is when Jesus is telling the disciples what they are to be doing. Not only the disciples, but us. What we are to be doing. Jesus says, go therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So while the apostles' ministry was unique, ours is universal, it's for every single believer. If you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is for you. This is what you and I are to be doing, without exception, without qualification, in that if you have trusted in Christ, you are born again, the Spirit of God has regenerated you, and you have repented of your sins, and you invited Jesus Christ into your life, you surrendered to Him as Lord and Savior, you and I are to be making disciples of all nations. We have been given a task, and we can see that our task is threefold. Go! That means proclaiming the kingdom of Christ, proclaiming Christ's kingdom. That's the first part of our task. We're to be telling that Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord and Savior of the world. He is the one through whom God has provided redemption. He is the one through whom God will bring judgment onto the world. He is the one through whom the wrath of God will come, as you see in the book of Revelation. He is the one that has been appointed the king, the rightful ruler, the, the supreme God. So we're to be proclaiming Christ's kingdom. We're to be also making disciples. Making disciples, which means that we're teaching individuals what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be having people grow in their sanctification, to be more like Christ. And we're also to be baptizing them. We're to baptize them, help them understand who they are in Jesus, help them to understand that they are identifying with Jesus and they are a participant in His life and his, as they go under the water, as they are just like Christ was died, buried in the tomb, and he is risen from the dead, so we too, by faith in him, are crucified with Christ, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, and that by faith in him, we are crucified with Christ, we die, his death, enter into his death, and then as he was risen from the dead, we now walk in newness of life, as Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 clearly state for us, or 6, 4 specifically. Paul writes, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. To be walking in newness of life. In new, we're new creatures. We're a new creation. No longer do we have to continue to do the sins that we did before. Isn't that fantastic? The sins that held on to your heart and mind, the sins that enslaved us, the sins that if anyone in this room would know, we would be horrified and completely humiliated and shamed. He's saying, no, 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 we don't have to do that any longer. Then we are free. We are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. He took the wrath of God upon himself and he severed the chains of sin that totally shackle our soul. So we see that this task that we have is universal, but we also see that it's for a time. A time. Just like the apostles, they had a task. Theirs was for a time, and they have a testimony. We, too, we also do. Ours is for a time. How long is that time? Jesus says, I will be with you till the end of the age, until this world passes away, which means until we die or he comes again. So we do this until the day we take our last dying breath. There's no retirement for the Christian. Just so you know. You don't retire and say, hey, I've reached 100 people. I'm good. I'll be fine in eternity. Thank you. Please call me at the office. You know, I'm not going to be there. Whatever. So we have to understand that this is, this is for all time, until the end of the age. So we have this task. It is for a time, but we are also to be giving our testimony. Our testimony. And we're not shaking the dust off our feet. See, John writes of the, of the testimony we're to make. He says, and this is the testimony. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. That God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. So we are always prepared to give a reason, as 1 Peter 3, 15 says, to give a reason for the hope that we have. That eternal life that is available to us. So we can see that God calls us to testify to who He is and what He has done in Christ. But that's not all. You see, in the apostles, we see great victory. We see lives being transformed, demons being cast out, sick people being healed. But everything's not all rosy in the Christian walk. Let's look at verses 14 through 29. We're going to be kind of going through this story. We read about it. It's about King Herod. Now, we need to give a little bit of background into what we're seeing with Herod. Now we learn, not only from Mark, but other texts about um, John the Baptist, that Herod had beheaded John the Baptist. And the circumstances behind it are this. Herod had an affair with his half-brother Philip's wife, Herodias, which was not awful for them to do. It was a political scandal. I mean, it's amazing to me how the uh, politics of the time mirror ours today. Is it? Nothing new under the sun, as Solomon told us. Sin is always sin. So he, they, uh, he, Herod, was married to the Nabataean king Aretas, his daughter. It was a political marriage. He divorces her, and he marries his brother Philip's uh, wife. And it's a birthday party, and he's called King Herod, even though he wasn't really a king. He even talked about half his kingdom. He was a tetrarch, which meaning he ruled over a certain region. And he has this party, invites all of the, the well-known figures of Galilee to come and celebrate. Liquor's flowing. I mean, they're all, they're all just, it's a big giant party when, uh, as church history has said, Salome gets up to dance, which is Herodias' daughter. Now, some estimates have her between 12 and 14 years of age. And she begins to dance probably quite sensually. And it really pleases Herod, which is really sick, if you think about it. This is his niece and stepdaughter. 
Okay, this is, this is pretty sick stuff that's going on. Dances for him, pleases him so much that he says, you know what? I'm feeling generous. I'm going to give you up to half my kingdom. Ask whatever you want. I'll give up to half of it. This is great. And she goes and talks to her mother and comes back. She goes, I want on a platter the head of John the Baptist. We read that he, 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 he feared God. He, he knew that John was a holy and righteous man. But because he wanted to save face, he agrees to have it done. So John the Baptist is beheaded. The platter is brought before her, and she takes it to her mother. And it's a very grotesque scene. And we understand that his disciples come and take the body of John away. Now, what's, what's truly amazing about this, though, is how Herod's conscience won't let him go. He hears the name about, hears about Jesus, and he's paranoid. He's paranoid. His conscience is doing tricks on him. He's like, he's back from the dead. He knew what he had done was wrong. He knew that, that he had called him to the mat because of his sin. That's what John the Baptist had done. So he's paranoid. He's like, he's back from the dead. That's why powers are at work in him. He's, he's just a paranoid guy. Now, I look, though, at John the Baptist, and I look at his life, and I ask myself the question, what did John die for? What did he die for, ultimately? Think about it. Do you know what he died for? The sanctity of marriage. He spoke out publicly against this ruler's illegitimate marriage. He says it's not lawful. It's not according to God's Word. It is a violation of God's Word. What you are doing. And that's a pretty big thing to do, to realize that he was beheaded for that. Now, how many of us in our divorce-filled society that is a scourge even upon the church of Jesus Christ, how many of us could do that? How many of us would be willing to speak out against it? to our friends, family, and even publicly to a government official that has the ability to take our life. I venture to say not many of us would. Not many of us would at all. But see, John the Baptist is a picture for us, an example for us, and it occurs. It's not by any mistake that it occurs right where it does in the text. We see the disciples coming back and it's a celebration about everything that happened. But then the mood changes when you see John the Baptist. And that is intentional by the Holy Spirit to show us that not everything is fun and games in the Christian life, but we are going to suffer for God's truth. That's the next point that you need to write down. Write that down in your notes. We don't have a very good theology of suffering, but as Christians, we are going to suffer. The Scripture is clear through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We're going to be suffering. This is not our best life now. Amen. Sorry to say, people are like, oh, it's our best life now. No. John the Baptist would disagree. And so would his head. We're going to suffer. When we speak the truth in love, people are going to respond positively or negatively. Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ to those that are perishing. You know, no, 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 we are the aroma of Christ. To those that are perishing, you know what we smell like? Death. They don't want it. But for, to those, there are going to be some, the, the fields that are white for harvest, the people that are primed and ready to respond is going to smell the smell of life and be drawn to it. It's an amazing picture. We are the aroma of Christ. The people smell us. 
and they smell Jesus in us. Either they're going to be drawn to the Savior or repel. It's a pretty amazing picture that we are going to be suffering for God's truth. If we take a stand for God's truth, we are going to, I guarantee, receive some type of persecution, some type of pain, some type of problem is going to come our way. Whenever we stand for Christ, we can be sure that we will be suffering for God's truth. And God invites us to suffer. Even Paul talks about that, that he makes up the sufferings of Christ in his own body. He has them occur. Saying that we are, be able to, we are able to participate in the suffering of Christ is pretty amazing. Now, God's invitation goes even further. Not only does he invite us, to, it sends us into the world, but he invites us to suffer. And it goes even further than that, than that. Let's look at our next section, verses 30 through 44. So we see in verses 30 through 44 that the apostles returned to Jesus and they told him everything that they had done. And he said, he said to them, hey, come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest a while. Hey, you need to get away. You guys are tired. It's all about, you know, you guys need some rest. You've, you've been given out. You've been going around to different people's houses. You've been interacting with people. You're tired. Let's get some rest. Okay? There is a theology of rest that we need to apply in our workaday world. As I've heard people say time and time again, the devil doesn't take a break, neither do I. Well, I didn't know that he was our example. Jesus worked six, rested, I mean, God, God created and rested one. His is the example we follow. Okay? So, let's continue to look at our text. For many were coming and going. This is the latter part of verse 31. And they had no leisure even to eat. This is how busy they were. Have you ever been this busy in your life? You got through the day and you went, did I eat anything? I think I'm hungry. I mean, this is how busy they were in their ministry. See, sometimes we don't think they're as busy as we are today. They were busy, and this was before cell phones and cars and instant messaging and the Lord knows what else. And they are so busy, they don't even have an opportunity to eat. For many who were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. They're just getting away from everybody else. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Now, I don't know how else to, to relate this except to some of the celebrities that we see today and they get aboard the bus and everybody figures out where they're going to be going, what hotel, and they just make a beeline to get there to wait for them so they can see them even just get off the bus. Now, these are just celebrities that all they do is sing and act and play a big giant game of pretend on camera. And that's what actors do, isn't it? They're just really good at pretend. Basically. And yet we idolize them and ask them to make statements on politics and religious truth and they, they're good at pretending. Wow. Okay, what an example. Okay, but he, they, they flocked to Jesus. Jesus had become a celebrity by this time. He's like rock star status. I don't know how else to put it. I don't mean to be crass. What I'm saying is that he had been known as the healer. People had known that he, he could heal sicknesses. They'd heard about all the miracles that he'd done. They just wanted to get a piece of Jesus. So they flock to where he's at. So they beat him there. They figured out where he was going. They could see his boat, and you could picture him just, hey, he's going over there. He's going over there. Go, 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 go. And they're trying to get there. So they get there ahead of them. Now, when he went ashore in verse 34, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. I love that word, compassion in Greek. It's splunkna. Say that with me. Splunkna. You know what that means? From the gut. 
from the gut. It means he's feeling it in the depth of his being. He has compassion on them. He doesn't disdain them. He doesn't hate them. So I, I hate, uh, no offense, but I hate the musical or the rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar. Not only is the theology in, totally messed up, I mean totally messed up. Judas comes out as like glorified at the end, by the way. I remember seeing that as a junior in high school, and I wasn't walking with the Lord yet, and I'm sitting there going, I think this is blasphemous. <laughs> and there's a part in, the music, in this rock opera where they're going, won't you touch and heal me, Christ? And they're trying to get close to him, and he's just like, heal yourselves! Jesus doesn't do that. That's not Jesus. Even when he's tired, even when he's, he's hurt, I mean, he's, he's dealing with the emotional well-being even of his, his disciples, and, and, and he's, he's caring for them, and he sees this crowd, and he, he just wanted to get a rest for a minute, and he's like, he still feels compassion for them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. How great is his love? And he began to teach them many things, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. I mean, he's been teaching for several hours. People were just enthralled. They were hanging on every word that he's uttering. He was such an amazing teacher. And you can imagine how they were just penetrating their heart, and they hungered for it. And they, they didn't even care about the meals. And they're just wanting to hear it. Now, remember, Mark shows us that there, was, there were 5,000 men here. Now, they, they counted them by family. So they're counting out the heads of families. So there's about 5,000 families. So you're guessing, conservative estimates, around 20 to 25,000 people are hanging on his very word. This is without amplification. This is amazing to see the picture that's going on. Can you imagine just staring out on this countryside? And like it almost, you can imagine it like it be a little bit of a hill because it has a natural amplification. I've been out there to the Sea of Galilee, and you can see where he would be teaching on the different shores, and he's teaching these people. It's getting late, and the apostles are like, they're, I mean, they're, they're tired. It's been a long day. They've been given out. They, they just come back from a trip where they're out. I mean, they're telling about who Jesus is. They're, they're asking people to repent, and they're, they're tired, and they're hungry, and they come to Jesus. They said, hey, Jesus, it's getting late. Man, we don't have any food. Can you, can you send them out? Send them so they can get a place to eat. Send them away and go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. You wondered what they were like. Say what? Did he just say give them something to eat? Do we have some food? I mean, you can imagine the conversation that just ensued. And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. They're like, there are like 25,000 people here. So, and they said to him, pretty much mildly sarcastic, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it, them to, give it to them to eat? This is about 200 days wages for a normal laborer. All right? It gives you an idea of how much money is involved here. In verse 38, and he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Now, the way that it's worded here, we can't really quite grasp it in English, that it was, they understood that Jesus had a point to what he was doing. Now, what I'd like us to see, and there's a principle that we can pull out from this, and that is this, God invites us to share what we have. Sharing what we have. See, when God calls us to a task, he doesn't call us to give us what we don't have, he wants what we have. 
He wants what we have. He wants the little that we have. Because see, when we give the little that we have in the hand of God, He makes it much. So that's why there's two parts to sharing that we can see here. First of all, we give it. Secondly, God grows it. We give it, God grows it. That's what we are supposed to do. We're to give it, and God is the one who grows it. Paul talks about this. He, says, he talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, I planted, Apollos watered it, but it is God who gives the growth. So whether he who plants or he who waters is anything, it doesn't matter. It's God who gives the growth. God is the one who grows it. It's found throughout all of the pages in Scripture. We're just commanded to share it and give the results to Him. Let Him take it over. We're not to make someone respond. God's the one working on their heart, and we don't know. They could be ripe. We don't know how far they've gone. We just look at the outward, but God looks at the heart. God knows individuals' heart. He knows the sins people are holding on to, and He knows right when they're ready to respond to His saving message. That's what God is about, and He invites us to be sharing, and then he will make it grow. They say five and two fish, verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Green grass. Highlight that little adjective there, green. That's a sign, by the way, that Peter is probably the one, most likely the one, that is telling John Mark his information. Because Mark includes details that no other gospel writer gives. Remember we saw this when Jesus was asleep in the boat? His head was asleep. I mean, he was sleeping on the what? Pillow. Pillow, these little details. Little details. And he says, now it's, it's green grass. He has them sit down by fifties and hundreds in the green grass. And taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. See, God's the one who gives the growth. He is the one to whom we entrust ourselves. And this principle of entrusting ourselves is found throughout all of the pages of Scripture. See, it is God who is working out His will through His servants that are holy devoted to Him. With God, ordinary people can do extraordinary things. See, God wants us to trust in Him to do what it is that He has called us to do, and He will make sure that He is supplying what we need. Supplying what we need. That's the next principle that we can pull out of Jesus' breaking of the bread and multiplying it. He knows what we need. We're to make sure that we're walking by faith and not by sight. Making every effort to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And as we do, God will take care of our needs. As Paul said, my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Do we trust God to do that? Do we trust God to supply our needs? See, God supplies our need when we don't even know what we need. He takes care of it. One night in Central Africa, Helen Roosevelt, Helen Roosevelt, who was a missionary in the Belgian Congo in the 1950s and the 1960s, she shares this story. We've talked about her in the past few weeks. She says, I had worked hard to help a mother in the labor ward, but in spite of all that we could do, she died, leaving us with a tiny, premature baby and a crying two-year-old daughter. We would have difficulty keeping the baby alive. We had no incubator. 
We had no electricity to run an incubator and no special feeding facilities. And although we lived on the equator, nights were often chilly with treacherous drafts. A student midwife went for the box we had for such babies and for the cotton wool that the baby would be wrapped in. Another went to stoke up the fire and fill a hot water bottle. She came back shortly in distress to tell me that in filling the bottle, it had burst. Rubber perishes easily in tropical climates, and it is our last hot water bottle, she exclaimed. As in the West, it is no use crying over spilled milk, Miss Roosevelt writes. So in Central Africa, it might be considered no good crying over a burst water bottle. They do not grow on trees, and there are no drugstores down forest pathways. All right, I said, put the baby as near the fire as you safely can. Sleep between the baby and the door to keep it free from drafts. Your job is to keep the baby warm. The following noon, as I did most days, I went to have prayers with many of the orphanage children who chose to gather with me. I gave the youngsters various suggestions of things to pray about and told them about the tiny baby. I explained our problem about keeping the baby warm enough, mentioning the hot water bottle. The baby, baby could easily die if it got chilled. I also told them about the two-year-old sister crying because her mother had died. During the prayer time, one 10-year-old girl, Ruth, prayed with the usual blunt consciousness of our African children. Please, God, she prayed, send us a water bottle. It'll be no good tomorrow, God. The baby will be dead, so please send it this afternoon. Well, I gasped inwardly at the audacity of the prayer. She added by way of corollary, and while you are about it, would you please send a dolly for the little girl so she'll know you really love her? As often with children's prayers, I was put on the spot. Could I honestly say amen? I just did not believe that God could do this. Oh, yes, I, I know that God can do everything. The Bible says so, but there are limits, aren't there? The only way God could answer this particular prayer would be by sending a parcel from the homeland. I had been in Africa four years at that time, and I had never, ever received a parcel from home. Anyway, if anyone did send a parcel, would, who would put a hot, in a hot water bottle? I lived on the equator. Halfway through the afternoon, while I was teaching in the nurses' training school, a message was sent that there was a car at my front door. By the time that I reached home, the car had gone, but there on the veranda was a large 22-pound parcel. I felt tears pricking my eyes. I could not open the parcel alone. So I sent for the orphanage children. Together we pulled off the string, carefully undoing each knot. We folded the paper, taking care not to tear it unduly. Excitement was mounting. Some 30 or 40 pairs of eyes were focused on the large cardboard box. From the top, I lifted out brightly colored knitted jerseys. Eyes sparkled as I gave them out. Then there were the knitted bandages for the leprosy patients, and the children began to look a little bored. Next came a box of mixed raisins and sultanas that would make a nice batch of buns for the weekend. As I put in my hand again, I felt that, wait, could it be? I grasped. Grasp it and pulled it out. Yes, a brand new rubber hot water bottle. I cried. I had not asked God to send it. I had not truly believed that he could. Ruth was in the front row of the children. She rushed forward crying out, if God has sent the water bottle, he must have sent the dolly too. <laughs> Rummaging down to the bottom of the box, she pulled out the small, beautifully dressed dolly. Her eyes shone. She had never doubted. Looking up at me, she asked, can I go over with you, mummy, and give this dolly doll to that little girl so she'll know that Jesus really loves her. The parcel had been on the way for five whole months, packed up by my former Sunday school class whose leader had heard and obeyed God's prompting to send a hot water bottle even to the equator. One of the girls had put a dolly for an African child five months earlier in answer to the believing prayer of a 10-year-old girl to bring it that afternoon. See, God supplies our need. 
even when we don't know what we need. There is one last section I'd like to take a look at, and that's found in verses 45 through 52. So look with me as we go through this. Immediately, remember that's a key word in Mark. It's continually moving. That's why we're moving pretty fast through this book. We're trying to capture the essence of what Mark is doing. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat, go before them to the other side. They were tired. They were exhausted. He's sending them away to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. He stayed. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray, as was his common practice. And when evening came, the boat was out of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, the fourth watch is the time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. The Sea of Galilee is 696 feet below sea level, resulting in violent downdrafts and sudden windstorms. Jesus sees their need. He can see them from the shore and walks on water toward them. Now, he meant to pass by them, not so that they would fail to see him, in which case he would have stayed farther away from them, but they would see them pass by. The Greek word there is parerikomai, which means it was intentional that he walked near them, walking on the water, thus giving visible evidence to his deity. Now, the passage echoes the incident where God passed before Moses. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, the same word is used in the Septuagint in Exodus chapter 33, verses 19 and 22, and also in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, giving a glimpse of His glory. This is an implicit claim uh, to divinity in Jesus' actions. He's, see, remember, look what, what happened after verse 52, if they did not understand about their loaves because their hearts were hardened. He's saying then they didn't get the fact that he was showing them that miracle to believe in him. And they didn't get it. Now he is showing them implicitly that I am the Son of God. And they are freaked out. They cry out because they think he's a ghost. And they're terrified. But he walks to them to the boat, stops right outside the boat and says, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. I can sympathize with them. I would be freaked out. Wouldn't you? You're standing there. The boat is going crazy. The wind is just blowing. And you see a guy walking on the water. Did you see that? I need some sleep. And then Jesus walks to them. And then standing outside of the boat, I bet their eyes were as big as silver dollars. And they're all backing away to the other end of the boat. <laughs> and he says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And then he climbs into the boat, and then the wind ceased. And he got into the boat, the wind ceased, verse 51. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. See, often in our Christian faith, we are just like the disciples. We're, hard, we're hard-hearted. We don't take Jesus by faith, nor do we walk by faith. Jesus invites us to walk by faith, and when we do, He will be surprising us with His power. That's the last point that I want you to write down. He'll be surprising us with His power. Not only will He supply our need when we share, but He will surprise us with what He does with it. He will surprise us. God is in the business of surprising us and doing stuff that only He can do. We'll be surprised at how He works. We'll be surprised at what He can do through us, how He can speak peace to our lives, and how He can use us to transform others. The last story that I want to share with you today is about a man named Frank Jenner, the man from George Street. He says, or the story goes about him, this all started a number of years ago in a Baptist church in the Crystal Palace in South London. 
The Sunday morning service was closing, and a man stood up in, in, in the back and raised his hand and said, Excuse me, Pastor, can I share a short testimony? The pastor looked at his watch and said, You have three minutes. The man proceeded with his story. I've just moved into the area. I used to live in, in uh, Sydney, Australia. Just a few months back, I was visiting some relatives, and I was walking down by George Street. You know where George Street is in Sydney. It's going from the business area out to the colonial area, and a, a strange little white-haired man stepped out from a shop doorway, put a pamphlet in my hand, and said, Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I was astounded by these words. No one had ever asked me that. I thanked him courteously, and all the way home to London, this puzzled me. I called a friend and thanked God he was a Christian and he led me to Christ. The Baptists loved testimonies like that. Everybody applauded and welcomed him into their fellowship. Now, the ba that Baptist pastor flew to Adelaide, Australia, the next week. And 10 days later, in the middle of a three-day series in a Baptist church in Adelaide, a woman came for him for some counseling. He wanted to establish where she stood with Christ. She said, I used to live in Sydney, and just a couple of months back, I was visiting some friends in Sydney and doing some last-minute shopping down by George Street. A strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway and offered me a pamphlet and said, Excuse me, madam, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I was disturbed by those words. When I got to Adelaide, I knew this Baptist church was on the next block for me. I sought out the pastor, and he led me to Christ, so I'm telling you that I'm a Christian. The London pastor was now very puzzled. Twice in two weeks, he had heard the same testimony. He then flew to preach in the Mount Pleasant Church in Perth, Australia. When his teaching series was over, the senior elder of that church took him out for a meal and, asked, uh, and then he asked how the elder had got saved. He said, I grew up in this church from the age 15. I never made a commitment to Jesus, just hopped on the bandwagon like everyone else. But because of my business ability, I grew up to a place of influence. I was on a business trip to Sydney just three years ago. An obnoxious, spiteful little man stepped out of a shop doorway, offered me a religious pamphlet, and accosted me with the question, Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I tried to tell him I was a Baptist elder. He wouldn't listen to me. I was seething with anger all the way home from Sydney to Perth. I told my pastor, thinking he would sympathize, but he agreed. He had been disturbed for years knowing that I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And he was right. My pastor led me to Jesus just three years ago. The London preacher flew home and was soon speaking at a Keswick, a Keswick convention in the Lake District, and he threw in these three testimonies in his sermon. At the close of this teaching series, four elderly pastors came up and explained that they too had been saved between 25 and 30 years earlier throughout, through that same little man on George Street, offering them a pamphlet and asking the exact same question. The following week, he flew to a similar Keswick convention in the Caribbean to missionaries. He shared the same testimonies. At the close of his teaching, three missionaries came forward and said that they had also been saved 15 to 25 years earlier by that same little man's testimony and the same question on George Street in Sydney. Next, he stopped in Atlanta, Georgia to speak at a naval chaplain convention. Here for three days, he spoke to 1,000 naval chaplains. Afterwards, the chaplain general took him out for a meal and he asked the chaplain how he became a Christian. It was miraculous. I was at a naval, on a naval battleship and I lived a reprobate life. We were doing exercises in the South Pacific, and we docked at Sydney Harbor for replenishments. We hit King's Cross with a vengeance. I was blind drunk, got off on the wrong bus, and got off, I mean, got on the wrong bus and landed in George Street. As I got off the bus, I, saw, I thought I saw a ghost as this man jumped out in front of me, pushed a pamphlet in my hand, and said, Sailor, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? The fear of God hit me immediately. 
I was shocked sober, ran back to the ship, sought out the chaplain. He led me to Christ. I soon began to pray for the ministry under his guidance. I am now charged of 1,000 chaplains who are bent on soul winning today. Six months later, the London pastor flew to a conference for 5,000 Indian missionaries in a remote part of northeast India. At the, la- at, the head- at, the end of the, uh, at the end, the head missionary took him to his humble little home for a simple meal. He asked how he, as a Hindu, came to Christ. He said, I grew up in a very privileged position. I worked in the Indian diplomatic mission, and I traveled the world. I am so glad for the forgiveness of Christ and blood covering my sin. I would be very embarrassed if people found out what I got into. One period of diplomatic service took me to Sydney. I was doing some last-minute shopping laden with toys and clothes for my children. I was walking down George Street when a courteous, white-haired little man stepped out in front of me and offered me a pamphlet and said, Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I thanked him very much, but this disturbed me. I got back to my town, sought out our Hindu priest. He couldn't help me, but he advised me that to satisfy my curious mind, I should go and talk to the missionary in the mission home at the end of the road. That was good advice, because that day the missionary led me to Christ. I quit Hinduism immediately and began to prepare for the ministry. I left the diplomatic service, and here I am today by God's God's grace in charge of all these missionaries who have together led 100,000 people to Christ. Eight months later, that London pastor was preaching in Sydney. He asked the local Baptist minister if he knew of a little, elderly, white-haired man who handed out tracts on George Street. He replied, yes, I do. His name is Mr. Jenner. Although I don't think he does it anymore because he's so frail and elderly. Two nights later, they went to meet him in his little apartment. They knocked on the door, and this tiny, frail old man greeted them. He sat them down and made them tea. He was so frail that he was slopping the tea into the saucer as his hands shook. The London preacher sat there and told him of all these accounts from the previous three years. This little man sat with tears running down his cheeks. He told him his story. He said, I was on an Australian warship. I was living a reprobate life. In a crisis, I really hit the wall. One of my colleagues, to whom I gave literal hell, was there to help me. He led me to Jesus, and the change in my life was night to day in 24 hours. I was so grateful to God, I promised God that I would share Jesus in a simple witness with at least 10 people a day. As God gave me strength, I did that. Sometimes I was ill and I couldn't do it, but I made up for the days that I missed at other times. I wasn't paranoid about it. I've done this for over 40 years. In my retirement years, the best place was on St. George Street where I saw hundreds of people a day. I got lots of rejections, but a lot of people courteously took the tracks. In 40 years of doing this, I have never, ever heard of one single person coming to know Jesus until today. You know, this man who writes this article says, I would say that he, is be commi- he has to be committed to show gratitude and love for Jesus to do that for 40 years and not hear of any results. See, that simple little Baptist man witnessed perhaps 147,000 people. I think that God was showing that Baptist pastor from London that was the tip of the iceberg. Goodness knows how many more have been arrested for Christ doing huge jobs out in the mission field. So what's the point there? When we give it to God, let God grow it. God grows things in in ways we don't even begin to understand. We may not see the fruit immediately, but God will surprise us by His power at work. That little man didn't even know, not one single person, and he kept doing it for 40 years. And yet God made that grow. Because God is in the business of doing things that only He can do. And that's transforming lives. That's what he does, whether he calms the storm or how he works in and through our lives, whether it is how he works in and through a guy like Tim Tebow or Helen Roosevelt or Frank Jenner or us. He invites us, every single one of us, to witness his presence and power in us at work. 
That's what we see in our passage for today. And then he invites us and entrusts us to follow him by faith and to tell others who he is and then entrust him for the results. So the invitation still stands. God invites us to witness for him, to see what only he can do, to suffer for him, to share what we have for him, and then to watch him work. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God can do that with the little that we have? Do we believe that He can take the little that we have and give and make it much? Do we believe that He can transform hearts and minds today in the midst of our sin-sick, disease, cesspool society? God's in the business of that. And if you are here today and if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then I would invite you to do that. It's simple as confessing with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, and believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. Repent and believe. Believe in the good news of Jesus and He will save and transform your life. It's a guarantee. God is in the business of transforming lives and He invites us in His mission to help transform other people's lives. Let's pray. Father, we come before You today grateful at the work that You've done in the Scripture. Lord, You invite us to participate with You as we see what You've done in the world. We are invited to believe and entrust in You. And then, Lord, we, we walk by faith, not by sight. We give you all that we have and all that we do. Lord, we know that suffering awaits us, but we entrust ourselves to you, knowing that you are the God of all comfort. You are the God who has compassion, that you are our shepherd. Lord, you are the one and true God. And today, Lord, if there's someone here who is holding on to the depths of their sin, Lord, they're just, it's just chained their soul. They think about it day in and day night. They hate being at church. They hate hearing the word of God. Lord, I pray that you don't let them go. That you convict them by your spirit how much you love them and what you did on the cross for their sins. And Lord, that they might repent and put their faith in you and have the peace that transcends all understanding. They might have peace with God and then you would give them the, your peace. Lord, we entrust ourselves to you as a church knowing that you are the only one that can transform us and use us to reach many more people. Lord, let us not get distracted by many of the different things that are going on in the world. Help us to see that you have given us an invitation to participate with you in your mission to save a lost world. Lord, let us be bold with our family members. Let us be bold with our friends. Let's be bold with our colleagues. Lord, give us supernatural boldness. Just the apostles prayed for boldness. Lord, may we, because we walk with you. Lord, please glorify yourself in our midst. The honor and praise of your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just a couple of announcements. Um, we did go a little bit over today. I'm sorry about that, especially for the Sunday school teachers. But uh, just to remind you that you can get your small group material in the back and to say for our Adult Bible Fellowship. Uh, if you are new here, our Adult Bible Fellowship is a time where we are meeting up in the sanctuary. We are talking about the miracle of life change. We all want to change, do we not? We all want to be better. We all want to grow and be more like Jesus. And through our study today, we're going to see how that is possible. We also have some fellowship or some snacks in the back. Please feel free to stay and fellowship with us. Please stand for the closing benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.